0: in your Bibles tonight at the book of Galatians, chapter number 3. Galatians, chapter number 3. And uh, I'm going to read a lot of Scripture this evening. I hope you've got the patience for that. I trust that you do. And uh, I want to give us a little bit of context for uh, for the preaching tonight. And uh, I guess it'd help if I had a Bible. Somebody say amen to that. Galatians, chapter number 3. And I want to give you a little bit of background about what's taking place in the book of Galatians. Paul's writing to a church and... It is, like most New Testament, early New Testament churches, is it, it is a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles. However, uh, unlike some of the other churches, it is a predominantly Gentile church. And uh, there was a group of men that came from uh, Jerusalem, and these men were bad actors. They were not people that had truly believed on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were seeking to expand their footprint of influence. And uh, they came to the church at Galatia, uh, and they began to work their processes and spread their dogma uh, around this group and body of believers. And Paul was greatly disturbed. You know, this is uh, one of the only books in the New Testament Paul talks about later on, how large of a letter I've written unto you with my own hand. And uh, the book of Galatians is not a voluminous book. It's not. It's, there's not a lot of content relative to other Pauline epistles. When he says how large a letter I've written to you, uh, he's describing the large characters and letters that it was written in. Uh, Paul, we believe, had an eye condition. We believe that his uh, eyesight uh, was uh, impaired. And rather than doing what Paul typically did, which was dictating a letter to another individual to pin down, when he heard what was taking place at the church at Galatia, he was so disturbed at the prospect of it, he didn't wait for anyone else. He just sat down and scribbled out best as he could those big clumsy letters. Uh, but you know, isn't that good? Isn't that a picture of what the Holy Ghost does with our life? Uh, you know, I, I tell you, the penmanship of my life is not very good, but the Holy Ghost can take and even sometimes in big, clunky, awkward letters can do something, write something that's worthwhile. And so uh Paul is writing to the church at Galatia and he's writing regarding this great snare and danger that is before him. Now, there were two predominant heresies and errors that were being preached to the believers at Galatia. And they both regarded a, a person's relationship to the Old Testament law. Now, let me remind you, these are Gentile people. They never were under the law. Uh, the law never held any value or any merit for them. And uh, even those, Paul will go on to show to us in this letter to the church at Galatia, even those that had been under the law had been delivered from the law, through the sacrifice of Christ on on Calvary. But there were two main issues at hand. They were preaching that a person had to be circumcised to be saved, that they had to carry out the physical right and act of circumcision in order to be saved. The second lie that was being told was that they had to keep the law to remain saved. Or we might define it this way, that In keeping the law, that made them a better Christian. That God still considered a a currency of value upon the keeping of the law. And so Paul takes pen in hand and he writes to the church at Galatia, not just to straighten out this doctrinal error, but to warn them of the pitfalls of going down this road as viewing the credentials of Christianity as being summarized by our good works. And so he's writing to this church. And I want to read a little more than I normally would. In fact, I want to read all of chapter 3. And then our text, for the most part, will be the first nine verses of chapter 4. I believe we'll all survive that, Lord willing. I hope that we will because I want to give some context to what Paul is saying before we get into chapter number 4. And I want you to understand some of that background as to why he says what he says. So you're welcome, you can sit, you can stand, you can, you can do a handstand if you're able and got stamina. It doesn't matter to me. But I wanted to warn you ahead of time. We're going to read quite a bit of Scripture this evening. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 1. The Word of God says this, O foolish Galatians! Who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? Let me just pause there. This may take a little while because I might do some pausing. Amen. And let me just pause there and say that when when a New Testament believer goes back to the strictures of the law, they're not obeying the truth. They want you to believe they're obeying the truth. They're being really obedient to the truth, the Word of God. But in fact, the Holy Ghost defines that as disobedience. Says you've you've not obeyed the truth. Verse 2, he says, This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. He said, How would you get born again? He said, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? He said, That doesn't make sense that you were saved by the grace of God by the work of the Spirit of God in your life, and that now the substance of your Christianity would be the energies of your flesh. He says, that doesn't make any sense. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He said, you paid a high cost to walk away from man's religion. Why then would God lead you back to man's religion? Verse 5, He therefore that ministereth to you in the, the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore <coughs> that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, and he's talking about them believers at Galatians, he's talking about you and me, the heathen. It's what we were. Knowing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preach the gospel unto Abraham saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. These people at the church at Galatia were saying you had to keep the works of the law to be a child of Abraham. And Paul's saying, Well, that's not true. You don't have to keep the works of the law because Abraham wasn't a law keeper. He was was a man of faith. He was not a man of of, uh, fleshly works or uh, he was not a law keeper. Verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. When a man selectively keeps the law, what he's really doing is bringing a curse upon his own life. Right. Uh, in other words, when they say, well, I'll keep the dietary laws, but I won't keep the sacrificial laws. You know, or when they say, well, I'll keep the Sabbath day, or I'll keep the feast days, but, you know, I won't keep the other laws. What they're really doing is bringing a curse upon their own life because that's what the law did. It said you had to do all of them, elsewise a curse abided on you. Verse 11 says, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For and three times in your Bible, this is one of them, the other uh, is uh, in the book of uh, Malachi, and then uh, once again in the book of Romans, and again, or three times in the New Testament, this is the third time, four times in your Bible, once in the book of Malachi, once in the book of Romans, once in the book of Hebrews, and here it says, for the just shall live by faith. By the way, first time that was uttered, not the book of Malachi, the book of Habakkuk, excuse me. The first time that was uttered, it was under the law. Habakkuk lived under the law. And yet God said to him, Habakkuk the just shall live by faith. He says, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Verse 13, he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. If it takes the law to get saved, us Gentiles are left out in the rain because the law was never given to us as Gentiles. Uh, The law has nothing to do. It doesn't regard Gentiles. And as such, if if keeping the law is the criteria, we're just going to have to die and go to hell because the law has nothing to do with us. I'm thankful that's not the case. I'm thankful through Calvary that even a, even a heathen Gentile like you and me can be born again. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How do we do that? Through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. In other words, Paul says, let's go ahead and use human earthly terminology. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto. He saying, in other words, when a covenant is given, it is then sealed. That's true in human covenants. How much the more would that be true in God's covenants? He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many. Do you remember last Sunday morning, Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman? But as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, that was in Genesis 15, had nothing to do with Abraham. Abraham was brought into that covenant, but it was God that performed both sides of that covenant whenever he put Abraham to sleep in a horror of darkness and entered into that covenant with himself, God did, as a smoking lamp, as a burning furnace. He he passed in between the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, and made a covenant with himself, says this, The covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. You see, that promise was a covenant. But when God makes covenant with Himself, it's no longer just a covenant. Now it's a promise. So how do you know that, preacher? Because God don't break covenants. Amen. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise wherefore then serveth the law it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator now a mediator is not a mediator of one but God is one in other words he's showing a distinction between the promise given to Abraham and the law given on Sinai, and he's saying this law had a mediator because it was between God and man The promise given to Abraham did not have a mediator because it was between God and God. And it didn't have to be enforced because God always keeps His promises. It says, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Notice, by the way, faith here is being used not in a practical sense, but in a clinical sense. Not talking about effectual dependence uh, upon God when he says faith in verse 23, but he's talking about a belief system, a body of dogma. And he's saying before faith in Jesus Christ as the revealed Son of God came, We were under the law and we were shut up unto the faith, the dogma, the belief in Jesus Christ that should afterwards be revealed. He says in verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, schoolmaster does what? Tells you where you're wrong. It's what a teacher does. They tell you where you're wrong. They tell you where you've got things incorrect and they bring you to a right appreciation of the truth. That's what the law was given for. It says, but after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's a child of God, but he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying, ye all, meaning Jews and Gentiles, are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Ye observe days and months and times and years. He's talking about Jewish feast days. That's what he means when he says that. Well he's not talking about pagan feast days. He's talking about Jewish feast days. And he says he observed days and months and times and years. By the way, the pagans didn't observe years, but the Jews observed years. They observed the jubilee year, they observed the sabbath years as was prescribed under the law, and that's what these people were involving themselves in. Paul then says this, I'll read this, and then we'll pray. I'm afraid of you lest I bestowed upon you labor in vain thank you so much for your patience let's pray lord we love you thank you for the word of god use it in our hearts use it in our minds tonight to glorify christ to uplift him we ask it in his precious name amen now we have for the past few services been looking at the doctrine of the incarnation Uh, the incarnation if we were to give a clinical definition of it would read something like this the eternally existent second person of the triune Godhead indwelt the sinless body prepared for him by the conception of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. He was born in Bethlehem in the land of Israel and lived a perfect sinless life. He is a hundred percent God as he has always and eternally been. Due to this miraculous entrance into time and humanity, he is also a hundred percent man. This event and ongoing reality constitutes the truth of the incarnation. As we said this morning, this truth is a truth of historical fact. Any honest person would have to regard as fact that Jesus Christ lived and walked amongst men and died and even rose from the dead. It is a truth of theological force. It will inform everything else about what you believe. If you believe wrong about this, it will lead you astray in all the rest of your beliefs. And then it is a truth of practical faith. It affects, informs, and impacts our life. We have looked last Sunday morning at the Incarnation as a solution to some things regarding man's condition. Last Sunday night, we talked about the Incarnation as a demonstration of true righteousness. This morning, we talked about the Incarnation as a revelation of the personage of God. But tonight in Galatians chapter 4, having given all that context, I want you to notice with me verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. That's the incarnation. Why did He do that? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. The incarnation viewed as a liberation. In other words, Jesus Christ came that He might free men from certain strictures and systems that they had been in bondage under. When we consider the writings of the Apostle Paul, one of the things, me and my wife use this terminology a lot, there's a phrase, I don't know if you ever heard it, it's called the pronoun game. And the pronoun game is not whether your pronouns are thee or they, or zit or zad, or zig or zag. But the pronoun game is when people in talking don't use proper nouns, but instead just use pronouns and sometimes leave it up to you to try to deduce and figure out who they're talking about. If I just walked up to the pulpit and said, I'm so mad at him, your first question would be, who's him? If I said, I can't believe what she did, your first question would be, who is she? And I will tell you that every single word in your King James Bible uh, is inspired by the Holy Ghost. (laughs) It's exactly what it ought to be doesn't need to be corrected or adjusted or or in any way updated. It's exactly what it ought to be. That being said, the Holy Ghost sometimes likes to play the pronoun game. And when you read through the Pauline epistles, great clarity will be brought to your mind when you stop and consider the pronouns the Apostle Paul uses. Probably to me, the quintessential example of this is Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter number 1, in the first 11 verses, Paul goes to great lengths talking about what God has done for us and for we. But then he says something interesting down long about verse 12 or 13. He talks about in whom also ye trust. He's talking about believing on Christ. And Paul draws a clear distinction between us and they, between we and them. Now, there's a number of ways we can interpret that distinction. But understanding that Paul's writing to a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles and that Paul himself was an Hebrew of Hebrews, the clearest and most obvious explanation is simply this, that a great many times that Paul talked about we and us, he's talking about Jews. And when he talked about they and them and he's talking about saved people, he's talking about Gentile. Understanding this truth will immediately clear up one verse and I'll read it because I think it would help us. Uh, in Ephesians chapter number 1, that has been a great source of error in a great many people's doctrine. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, he's talking about Jews, blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Why did he say that? Because Jews thought their only blessings were temporal blessings. And he's saying, no, they're spiritual blessings. According as he hath chosen us in him from the foundation, of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He's talking about that which the law failed to produce. The Lord succeeded in producing. That it was always the will of God that Israel as a nation be found holy and without blame before him in love. And then he says this in verse 5. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. A great many people have got tripped up at that verse. Some people, when they see the word predestinated, uh, they just all of a sudden, lights flash in their mind and sirens go off. And all of a sudden, they think that John Calvin has climbed out of the pages of their Bible. But the word predestinated, understood in a biblical concept context, is not something that should scare you or I. There are certain things God has predestinated. And when we consider what Paul's saying there, and when we consider the biblical definition of adoption, which is talked about in our text here, adoption is not the inclusion in a family, it's a promotion in a family. I'm going to say that again. We think of adoption as inclusion in a family. That's how we define it. We say, oh, that child or that person was adopted. And we think of it like they were not part of a family. Now they are part of a family. But Galatians chapter 4, and we'll talk about this here in a moment, makes it abundantly clear that the biblical concept of adoption was that a person when they were a child did not live in the full stature of their status, but they were treated as a servant. And adoption was the process whereby they stepped into the full vestiges of sonship. So adoption biblically is not an inclusion in the family, it's a promotion in the family. And Paul in Ephesians 1, when he describes... Then being predestinated under the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ unto Himself. He's not saying that God picked some people for heaven and some people for hell. What he's saying is that it was always the will and the plan of God that Jews that believe in the Lord would come into the full relationship with God that God had intended, not through the works of the law, but through the death of Christ on Calvary. That it was never intended that it might be through being good law keepers, that they would reach the potential that God had for them, but rather that they would become sons of God. How? Didn't we preach on it this morning? To as many as received Him. To them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. And So when Paul talks about the adoption of sons and predestination, he's not saying he picked some for heaven and some for hell. He's saying it was always God's intention that the law would fail in this respect, but that the Lord would succeed in this respect. And often when you read in the Bible... And if you want to understand what Paul's writing, you have to take into account and consider those pronouns that are used. Now, let's stop and think about what he says here in this passage. Now, I say that the heir... Now, who is the heir? The heir are those that have believed on God through Jesus Christ. That's what it says at the end of chapter number 3. It says, If ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But he says the problem is that the status of an heir under the law is different from the status of an heir in New Testament grace. said, under the law, if a person was an heir, he says, the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we... Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jewish Individuals. We Jews, we when we were children, meaning when we didn't fully understand who God was, were in bondage under the elements of the world. By the way, when he's talking about the elements of the world, he ain't talking about drinking and dancing and drugs and carrying on in promiscuity. He's talking about an a, a temporal form of worship. He's talking about the Old Testament law. He says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son... Made of a woman, made under the law. Why did he send him? To redeem them that were under the law. As a Gentile, you've never been under the law. Why does this matter? Because he's writing to a group of Gentiles that are trying to be under the law. And he's saying, don't you understand that the whole reason Christ came in regards to the Jewish nation was to redeem them out from under the law and give to them something that the law could never provide. He, that's the reason he says in chapter 3 "Oh, Foolish Galatians. Why did he say that? Because they was acting like a bunch of fools. They were running hard as they could at something that God had sought to deliver Israel from. And he says how foolish it is that you're doing this. He says, in fact, when God sent his son into this world, he did so that he might liberate him from the strictures of the law and give him a new status in Jesus Christ. This idea, the incarnation as a liberation. I want you to notice four thoughts here tonight and then we'll be done. Notice, number one, the premise of this liberation. Verses one through three. But notice particularly verse one and two. He says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors. Those are authorities that are given over that child's life to try to mold and shape them and prepare them for adulthood, is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Why did Jesus have to come that he might procure redemption and liberation from the law? Why was that important? Well, because number one of the status that man had under the law now again, let me remind you, this really regards Jews and not Gentiles. But in as much as men today, and there's a lot, of, a lot of noise about this, there's a lot of movements about trying to put Gentile believers under the yoke of the law. In as much as men are seeking to do that, Paul wants to remind these believers in a very similar circumstance at this time that they have a greater status under Christ than they would have had under the law. Here, Israel is described as heirs of the promises of God. And indeed, they were. They were the seed of Abraham. They were the descendants of him. They had a claim upon those promises that had been given. But because they were under the law, because of their transgressions, because of their disobedience, because of their unwillingness to walk with God, here's what God did. He did what everybody does with a child. Hey, listen, my sons, one day they will inherit whatever I can't spend before I go. (coughs) <coughs> Debt's included, amen. And, uh, for all practical intents and purposes, I'm living my life in as much as, as we're trying to lay something up, tangibly speaking, for them and for their future. But you better believe I'm not gonna hand them the credit card right now. They cannot be trusted with it. We would be the number one shareholder in Lego, amen. And, well, nothing. There's worse things to invest in. And, uh, you know, uh, they cannot be trusted with that at this time. Now, they are my children. I love them. Everything I have is theirs. But because of their condition and because of their age and because of their level of immaturity, they cannot be trusted with it right now. You know, in the same respect, under the law, man was not treated as a son of God, but as a servant of the law. Uh, Old Testament Jews could not enter into as full face of a relationship with God as you and I can today. Uh, the proof of that is that God's given us His Spirit, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. No Old Testament Jew was ever able to talk to God in such familiar terms. In the Old Testament, their status was Lesser. And being under the law, as a, far from being a point of pride and a, a point of, of bragging and a, a, of greater status, was in fact proof that they could not be left under their own devices and they could not be trusted to walk in righteousness. We don't have laws in our society today because we are a righteous people. We have laws because we are an unrighteous people. And even so, the Bible says that the law was given uh, not to the righteous, but to the unrighteous. It was given not because men were so good that they had earned the right to the law, but because rather they could not be trusted in their own conduct and behavior. God set forth a standard of what righteousness looked like and said, I want you to try to attempt to uphold this knowing that you will not be able to do so. I see the status under the law, but then notice I see the servitude under the law. So what did that leave them? Verse 3, even so we, when we were children... We're in bondage under the elements of the world. Again, that language is very, very explicit. He's not talking about sin. He's not talking about dark, depraved, unrighteous things, but the context makes it clear he's talking about Old Testament worship. And he describes Old Testament worship as being deeply rooted in a temporal perspective. One way that we could describe it is that in the Old Testament, Israel was in the preschool of uh, spiritual enlightenment or illumination. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I miss about books, uh, and I own a lot of books, but I mean, I miss books I used to have. I, is it me or are there not enough pictures in books nowadays? <coughs> I don't understand why when you become an adult, they take away all the books that have pictures in it. That doesn't make sense to me. I even miss the ones that used to jump out the pages and pop up at you. I'll tell you this, I'd be a lot more apt to read if they, if if I had some pop-up books, amen? Some of y'all smart-alecks are going to go out and buy me a pop-up book now that I say that. I can see it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a package next Sunday wrapped up nice and pretty. Here, preachers your Christmas gift. I'm going to open it. It's going to be a pop-up book. Well, let me tell you something. Joke's on you because that's what I want. <laughs> that and a million dollars, amen? And uh, the Old Testament Jews were not in an advanced state of apprehension of divine truth, but rather in a diminished state. So here's what God had to do. He had to paint pictures all through their religion for them to apprehend and understand these truths. All of the Old Testament ceremonies and rituals were vivid types and pictures of spiritual realities that God would one day secure through the perfect righteous work of Jesus Christ. Now here's how naive and ignorant mankind is. Instead of looking at those pictures and learning the truth, Instead, like a little child with a pop-up book, they just kept opening and closing the book because they liked to see the picture pop up at them. Uh, instead of it becoming about communicating and conveying truth about who God is, that they might apprehend and appropriate it, they instead gave their focus and attention to the perpetuating of this system. In other words, they got to where they didn't worship the Lord, they worshiped the law instead. And that was never the intention of God. Now you say, preacher, how do you know that happened? Well, because they crucified Him in their mind according to the law. He was condemned. He was put without the camp as unclean because they judged Him. It wasn't really by the law of the Lord because the law of the Lord testified of Him. But they had so corrupted and twisted and and manipulated the truth of God that they were able for religious reasons to crucify God Himself. Boy, if ever there was a fit picture of what man does with religion, that's it. Man takes religion, weaponizes it, turns around and nails God to a cross with it. That in and of itself tells you how corrupted their perspective was. And so the law, as opposed to being something that advanced them in their spiritual understanding, it instead became a yoke of bondage upon them. And And Paul's pointing to the fact that none of this is something that is that is laudable. None of this is something that is that is good. None of this is anything that is positive. And that in fact, this is all a diminished state of a relationship with God. You say, preacher, did Old Testament Jews know God? Well, if they did, they knew Him by faith. And I'm sure a great many of them did know Him. But they could not possibly know Him as robustly or as personally or as intimately as you and I can know Him today. Through the person of Jesus Christ. Part of the reason that Christ came was not so that he might prop up that system. Uh, And he did not come to destroy it, but he did come to fulfill it. And listen, uh, Christ Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. What the law failed in doing, not because it was weak, but because it was weak through the flesh, through our flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, uh, that that the righteousness of God might be through the Spirit of God and by faith procured and secured something that never could have happened under the law. So we see the premise of this liberation. Men were not better under the law. They were not better off, but they were in bondage under the law. Then notice the process of this liberation. Verse 4. But, I like when God butts into a situation. But. When the fullness of the time was come, what does that phrase mean? Well, it means when it was appropriate according to the prophecies that the Word of God had given. And not only that, also when Israel had reached a state where there could be no further benefiting from them living under the law. They had proved time and time and time and time again that they would not accept the witness and testimony of the law regarding the coming Messiah. And there was uh, nothing left. They had, they had crucified every servant that had come out to the vineyard. Now God was going to send his own son out to the vineyard. And so when the fullness of time was come, what did God do? Well, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So how did God Procure this. How did He accomplish this? Notice the process of this liberation. It involved three things. Number one, it involved a perfect specimen. God sent forth His Son. And how did He send Him? He sent Him made of a woman, made under the law. Uh, If you want to divide your Bible into New Testament and Old Testament, it really shouldn't begin at Matthew 1. It should really begin at the cross of Calvary. It should really begin at the empty tomb. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was born under the law. He was taken as any young Jewish child would have been and circumcised on the eighth day. He was presented in the temple. He was brought every year annually up to the feast. And even throughout His public earthly ministry, He kept every single demand that God had laid upon the shoulders of a faithful Jew. He lived in perfect, impeccable, immaculate righteousness his entire life. Now, that's going to be operative. That's going to be important here in just a moment. But let me just point to the fact that he in his his righteousness did something that no man, Jew or Gentile, had ever been able to do. He lived in utter, absolute perfection. And you say, well, preacher, that does no good. I mean, listen, you know, uh, he he lived in righteousness, but how does that get us to God? Well, notice what happened then. The Bible says this is why he sent him, to redeem them that were under the law. The redemption of something involves the paying of a price and the appropriating of an item. In other words, the price is paid and then it is retrieved unto itself. In this simple phrase, we have a picture of what happened when Christ died on the cross of Calvary. Here's what we have. We have a perfect specimen, but number two, we have a proper substitute. You see, you remember what Paul has said earlier in chapter number 3? Uh, that there's a curse upon any man that doesn't continue in all the works of the law. You know what that means? That means every single person that was under the law was cursed under the law. The law did not look and 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 condone a single one of them. It condemned every one of them. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter number 2. That the law was given that every mouth would be stopped. And that the whole world would be guilty before God. He's concluded them all in unbelief. The law did not ever vindicate a single man. It didn't then, and it does not today. That is not the function of it. It would be the equivalent of taking your pickup truck, driving out in the middle of Norris Lake and saying, this is a miserable submarine. It was not designed for that purpose. And the law was not designed to clear a man. The law was designed to condemn a man. So every single one of them in the Old Testament, every Jew in the Old Testament, every one of them was found condemned under the law. They had a sin that looming and hanging over them. By the way, Gentiles are not excluded from this reality. We likewise are condemned by creation and by our conscience. But Paul's looking at Gentiles that want to be under the law. And he's saying, why would you want to be under the law? Men under the law were cursed. Men under the law were condemned. Why? Because they could not keep the works of the law. And all it did was reveal and disclose that fact. So there was a sin debt that was placed upon them. Why did Christ come as a perfect specimen? That he might be a fit and full payment for that sin debt that had been accrued by the unrighteousness of mankind. It's interesting. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that the flesh of Christ, and it's using that terminology in a symbolic sense regarding his earthly life, uh, integrity and virtue. That the veil that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple was a symbol or type of the flesh of Christ, meaning his righteousness. Uh, the way that the Hebrews writer says is, is the veil that is to say his flesh. That's how God says. It. And it's interesting when you think about the function of that veil and you think about the rending of that veil. That veil stood, and time would fail us uh, undoubtedly to describe all that we could about the colors and the materials that were used and the dimensions of it. All of it points to Jesus Christ. But one simple fact is instructive to our message tonight. That veil was a barrier. When it was whole, it stood as a barrier. Here's the problem with going back to the Old Testament law. When a man goes to the law, this is why Paul says in chapter number two, if I build again the things which I've destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Because if a man goes to the law and says, I'll keep the law and I'll be righteous before God, here's what they're doing. They're looking at the perfect, immaculate uh, life of Jesus Christ and refusing to see it as rent for them and instead seeing it as a pattern to weave their own life by. And then what they're saying is, what he is, I can be. But the problem is, without that veil being rent, it stands not as a door, but as a wall between man and God. Had Christ not died for your sins and mine, all He would have done is bolstered the case of the law against us. All He would have done is said, see how unrighteous they are, because look at how righteous I am. Let me tell you what He did instead. He took our unrighteousness, and robed himself in it. And he went to the cross of Calvary. And he said, I'll die in their place. I'll be made a curse for them. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He said, I'll hang on the tree in their place. And he died in our stead on the cross of Calvary. And in doing so, the physical life of Christ was rent in twain, like that veil in the temple. But through that rending, access was provided for God. You know why? Because the veil that deserved to be rent was the veil of our life, not the veil of his life. You say, well, preacher, if that was the veil of our life that was rent, where was the veil of his life? Wrapped around my shoulders, shielding me and giving me access to God. You see, what Paul's pointing to is two things, three things, four, eight. I don't know. We'll see. Number one, he says there's a perfect specimen. He lived in perfect righteousness. There is a proper substitute. He paid the price. He came to us. He procured mankind through the incarnation to redeem them that were under the law. Why did he do that? That we might receive the adoption of sons. Here's what we see is a purchased sonship. A purchased sonship. I don't have the time to describe how that God's dealings with Gentile humanity and God's dealings with the Jewish nation Converged at this, this, this confluence point at the cross of Calvary. And I, you know, I don't guess there is a better picture of it than here's Christ dying on the cross, his cross being carried by a Jewish man from Cyrene by the name of Simon. He's getting ready to be laid in the borrowed tomb of a Jewish man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He's been recently visited by a bunch of Greeks that had come to Philip and said, we would see Jesus. And over standing to the side is a Gentile Roman soldier looking up and saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Suffice it to say that God's dealings with the Gentile world and God's dealings with the Jewish nation met and collided at the cross of Calvary. And there at that confluence point, God provided a means and a way for both Jew and Gentile to be not just servants under the law, not just pagans worshipping naked under the moonlight, but to be something far greater than what man's self-righteousness could ever attain unto them, that they might be made the sons of God. Paul's speaking in regards to how this changed things for Israel as a people. He did this because the law could never make them sons. The law was always going to treat them as servants. But in Christ, they graduated from being servants and became sons of God and were given a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord. Now, he's looking at them and saying, so why in the world would you want to go back to that old system? We see the premise of this liberation, the process of it. But notice the privilege of it. Verse number 6. He says, because ye are sons. Isn't that interesting language? Remember the pronouns. He's been saying we. Isn't that what he said in verse number 5? Verse number that we, us Jews, might receive the adoption of sons. But now he says, and because ye are sons. Well, why is that? Because they got in the same way that the Jews got in. Remember, it concluded them all in unbelief. Why? Not that he might condemn them all. They were condemned already. Isn't that what he said when he came? He said, I came not to condemn the world, uh, but that the world uh, through him might be saved. The world's condemned already. They were all concluded in unbelief. Why? That he might have judgment upon all? No. Judgment is his prerogative and right no matter what. So why did he conclude the whole world guilty and in unbelief? That he might have mercy upon all. Why did he conclude it through Abraham? Uh, because he knew if it was a matter of keeping the law, the Gentiles were never given the law. I'm going to say this again, man. This just needs to be said. The Gentiles were never given the law. The Gentiles were never given the law. If you're a Gentile, you were never under the law. If your daddy was a Gentile, you were never under the law. Uh, uh, listen, my Scotch-Irish-German uh, ancestors, and if the IRS comes asking, I'm a little bit Native American too, all right? My ancestors were never under the law. We have always, as Gentiles, never been under the law. But listen, even to them that were under the law, why did he send his son? To redeem them out from under the law and to give them a status that they never otherwise could have had. So what then is the privilege of this liberation? Well, he says, because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. By the way, you've heard me say this before, but here's a good proof text for it. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Christ. That's their relationship one to another. How do we know that? He sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. That's the Holy Ghost crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Two things resulted from this privilege. One is the privilege of direct fellowship. That term Abba, uh, Father, it, it denotes a, a personal intimacy. It, it would be the equivalent of us looking at our father and calling him Daddy or Papa or Pa or whatever it is that you called your father. Uh, it has the idea of someone that has direct, intimate connection and access to someone. This is something that Jews under the Old Testament never enjoyed. It was an act of Congress for them to get to God. Now, I'm not suggesting they couldn't pray. They could pray. But even in their prayer life, they didn't have a concept of this kind of intimacy with God. I Listen, plumb, plumb the depths, sound the depths of the book of Psalms. You won't find, and, that, and, and the book of Psalms is by far the most intimate Old Testament book, and you won't find language this intimate. You won't find Him talking to God and talking to Him like He's just His Father right there present with a relationship. He'll talk about Him as His Lord, as His God, as His strong tower, as His high tower, as His bulwark, as His buckler. He'll talk about Him as the rock. He'll talk about Him as the light. But you won't find anywhere where He talks about Him in this intimate of language. You know why? Because the Old Testament Jew didn't have this concept of fellowship with God the way we do today. But now, we enjoy that. We see the privilege of direct fellowship. Notice the second thing. We see the privilege of a divine relationship. He says this, Wherefore? Thou art no more a servant. Christ talked about this, by the way, in the New Testament. He said this, that a servant abideth not in the house forever, but a son abideth forever. He's pointing to the fact that if they as Jews didn't become more than servants, sooner or later as a nation, they were going to be put out of the house. It doesn't suggest that he has done or turned his back on Israel. But certainly Israel's been put out of the house for the past 2,000 years. God's not dealt with them as a nation. Now listen, you can read all the magazines you want. You can read all the anecdotal stories that you want about various miraculous things that have happened uh, regarding Israel. And I guess they might be true. I don't know. They're not in my Bible, so I'm not going to have an opinion on them. But I do know this, that even to this day, there's a veil uh, over their eyes in the reading of Moses. And they as a nation are under judicial blindness and under the judgment of God. This is not the time of the Jews. This is the times of the Gentiles. That's how the Bible defines it. It's the times of the... There's coming a day that he's going to turn his attention back to Israel. But right now, they've been put out of the house. Why? Because they refused to become sons, and they only wanted to be servants. And the trouble with the servant is sooner or later, the servant, he ain't going to inherit everything. He's going to be put out of the house. And so Paul points to the fact that through the cross of Calvary, we have been given the privilege of a divine relationship with God. Not that merely of a servant but that of a child of God, of a son of God. Now, if we are a son, then what are we? We are an heir of God through Christ. Oh, man, I, 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 have you got about four more hours? <laughs> heir of God through Christ. What does that mean? Heir of God it means everything that God is and everything that God has is ours. And we access it through Christ. He is He is the connection between us and God. And everything that God is and everything that God has, we don't get it through the law, we get it through the Lord. If a man wants to seek to get it through the law, he's going to come up short. But we can get it through the Lord. We're an heir of God through Christ. I see not only the premise and process and privilege of this liberation, but I want you to notice, and I'll be done tonight, just verses 8 and 9. Notice the proper response to this liberation. Why, how should this inform our life? Well, two things. Look at verse number 8. He says, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. And remember, he's writing to Gentiles. And before they came to know Christ, they were pagans. They worshipped all manner of depraved and, and imaginary deities that were popular and prominent in that part of the world during that day. He's saying, you know, when God came along, here's what he did. He took you from an earthly form of worship and gave you a heavenly relationship with God. The substance of your worship was all vested in tangible things. You would go and commit physical acts in physical temples towards physical idols. You would do things that had no spiritual import and they never benefited you spiritually, and they never changed you spiritually. They were all merely formalism that, that lived out like a rope play a certain theatrics before the world around you. He says that was what religion was to you. He said you got saved because you found in God something real and something beyond what this world could offer. Like Paul said about the church at Thessalonica, they had turned from idols to serve the living God. The living God. Don't you want to serve a living God? Not a dead God. I want to serve a living God. He's alive forevermore. Amen. I want to serve a living God. But in their paganism, they had served things that are no gods. And they had found in God something real and something living. Something that transcended this realm and this world. It wasn't just pageantry, but it was a real relationship with God. And here's what he says your proper response is this liberation. Number one, never forget your deliverance from paganism. And you say, Preacher, I was never a pagan. Yes, you were. (laughs) Yes, you were. Some of y'all might still be. I'm not sure. I ain't made my mind up. Sure, you were a pagan. Your concept of God was molded and shaped not by a true relationship with Him, but by merely the world's opinion of Him. That's what a pagan is. A pagan is a person that believes what the world says about God. Their concept of God is molded and shaped by the world's perspective and and worldview and opinion about who and what God was. Now, you may have grown up here in the uh, buckle of the Bible belt. You may have grown up here where you're saturated and surrounded by biblical nomenclature all day long. But because you didn't know God in sincerity, your concept of God was distinctly pagan. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Well, because you got saved. And if you got saved, it's because you found something in God that you hadn't found in Him before. And you learned that through the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You got saved when you came to know God in a biblical manner. That tells me before you got saved, however you knew God or whatever you knew of God was not biblical. You didn't know Him in a biblical manner. And when God saved you, He delivered you from a form of religion that gutted of any substance and sincerity was merely the external formality, ceremony, rituals, rites, and trappings of religion. Oh, it's all over this part of the world. You can go around. Hey, listen, you you can go and talk to people all day. Go knock on any door in Knoxville. And everybody's saved. I I don't understand where all the Marxists and the Sodomites are coming from. Because everybody I've met is saved. But then you ask them, what does that mean to be saved? They'll say, well, I'm a Christian. So, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you know, I believe the Bible. So, okay, well, how'd that happen in your life? What do you mean, how did it happen in my life? I've always been saved. You'll say, well, did you ever believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, no, I've just sort of always believed this way. What is that? That's a pagan worldview. It's not a biblical worldview. In other words, all around us, there are people whose, whose relationship to God is is fundamentally pagan in its nature. It's not rooted in the Bible and it's not substantive and it's it's not real and and, and it's, it, it's, it's not effectual but it's merely external trappings and formalism and religion. And God wants us to be reminded that when He saved us, He saved us from all that. He saved us. He gave us something real. I don't have to pretend when I come to church. I know we all talk about how church we've got hypocrites in it and people fake sometimes and people pretend. If you are, ain't nobody asking you to be. God doesn't ask you to be. That's one of the things I love about our church. We're just real. Sometimes that makes people uncomfortable. It does. I mean, I could give you names of people that were here a month ago that ain't here today because it makes people uncomfortable that we're just real. That we ain't going to put on pretense. We ain't going to wear a mask of religion. We're just going to be who we are in Christ. A lot of people don't like that. It makes some people uncomfortable. They can't handle that level of realness. And sometimes the pastor's a little obnoxious, if we're to be honest. And sometimes that draws people off. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, God delivered us from that when he saved us. So what then should we do? Well, let's think about what he says next. How be it then? When you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. said you were pagans. He says, but here's what I can't figure out. Now, after that you have known God, you know who he really is, He says, actually, though, let me say this, or rather are known of God. Why does he stop and say it that way? He says, you didn't just get an academic understanding of him. You got a personal relationship with him. And remember what he said in chapter 3. That didn't come by the works of the law, but that came by faith. You, Not just you know who he is, you know him. He knows you. You've got his number in your cell phone. You can call him up. You can cry Abba Father, and he answers. Amen. He says, After that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. So, oh, preacher, he's talking about them old sins. No, he's talking about that old religion. Because he says in verse ten ye observe days and months and times and years. He's talking to a group of people that are being led back into a form of Judaism that God is done with. Let me say this again. God's done with Judaism as a religion. He is done with that. It has no more currency with him. He is finished with it. He said it is finished. And he meant it. The moment he said it is finished, Judaism became a cult as a religion. It holds no currency or value with God. God doesn't regard it. There remaineth now, therefore, no more sacrifice for sin. God has closed the window. He has got the only sacrifice He needs. He is willing to share it with you if you'll receive it. But he is not accepting. He doesn't care about your red heifers. He doesn't care about your rabbinical, uh, you know, clinical, uh, the examiners and scrutiny. He doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't care if a temple gets built. Doesn't matter to him. There remaineth therefore no more sacrifice for sin. And listen, a lot, a lot, a lot of, of New Testament Christians may be obsessed with all those things. God is not interested in it. He has already spoken to this. You say, preacher, he don't care that a temple will get built? Well, he knows one of these days the Antichrist is going to set in one. And he does have some things on his calendar that have to do with that. But as far as him waiting and worrying over when a temple is going to be built so we can all start firing up the brazen altar again, God's not interested in that. He has moved from that. There remaineth therefore now no more sacrifice for sins. And he looks at these Gentile believers and he says, I don't understand it. This whole thing of religion, if we want to use that terminology, was about getting to God and knowing God. Why that you have this now? Are you going back to a defunct system of worship? Ain't you found what you needed in Christ? Let's say it this way. What's our proper response, preacher? Well, the first is to never forget the deliverance from paganism. But secondly, to never forget the dangers Of formalism. To never forget that if we ain't careful, we'll slip back into that thing of seeing who we are in Christ being predicated and dictated by our external religiousness instead of by the person and character of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? If there's anything about you that's worth noticing, it's Christ. It is not your standards. I'm for standards, I'm not against standards. I wish the world had more standards, but how God treats me and regards me is not predicated on either, either the, the strictness of my standards or the, the scrupulousness wherewith I abide by them. That doesn't make me what I am in Jesus Christ. I am what I am in, I'm an heir of God, not through my standards, right. but through Christ. Amen. The measure and amount of effort that I put in, hey, I believe we ought to work for Jesus. We ought to work till Jesus comes. God don't endorse or abide laziness. But who I am in Christ is not dictated by the measure of works that I do for him. Let me tell you something. If you ain't careful, it's real easy to slip back into this thing of thinking that Christianity is in its substance focused on what we do for him instead of what he has done for us. Man, this was messing this church at Galatia up. You know why he would talk about it? He said, you bite and devour one another. He said, beware lest you be consumed one of another. Funny thing about it, and nothing will tear a church up quicker than people getting focused on their own works and self-righteousness. Because pretty soon it'll all be about, well, I did more than they did. I did better than they did. I did this more consistently than they did. And he points to the fact that there is a great danger in our life in in allowing ourselves because here's what will sooner or later happen. When we start living with that worldview, then once we start regarding men, we'll stop regarding God. You remember how Paul said it, do I seek to please men or Christ? In other words, those two things, as a predominating focus, are mutually exclusive one of the other. Now, if me pleasing God pleases you, that pleases me. But I ain't doing what I do to please you. And if I seek to please men... I cease to please Christ. I have to make a choice betwixt the two. And the problem with formalism is that it is rooted deeply in the notion of seeking to please men at the expense of pleasing God. So how do you know that? Well, because the Sanhedrin in their religion nailed God to a cross. Because it wasn't about what God thought about things anymore. It was about what men thought about things. I'm saying this, it'll gut your Christianity. It'll make you a miserable, insufferable, unhappy person. And here's what it'll do. It'll ultimately put the hypocrite's mask on you if you allow who you are in Christ to be dictated and determined by those externalities rather than by the spiritual reality of what Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. Preacher, how can I respond to this? You can examine your life. You can examine your heart. And you can ask yourself this question. Am I doing what I'm doing to please God or to please men? I'll tell you this, if what you're worried with is what you can get away with, you're doing it to please men and not to please God. If your perspective is nobody knows about this, so it's all right, then you're doing it to please men and not to please God. If, if your perspective is, well, there's this one area where God's been dealing with me, but I'm for the most part serving God, then you're more worried about pleasing men than you are than pleasing God. I think we ought to seek to please God even at the expense sometime of pleasing men. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I appreciate so much your patience. I know that was a marathon. But I want you to respond to the Lord. If God's dealt with your heart tonight, say, Preacher, what can I do? Well, you can take inventory. You can look at your life. You can look at your heart. You can say, now, am I doing this for the right reasons, in the right way, in the right spirit? Am I doing this not to please men and not to please me, but to please the Lord? I think it'd be a good time maybe to have a spiritual well check in our hearts if God's dealt with us. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.